The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders. Going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And I am going to start the episode. Hi, everyone. It is Megan Judge. And I am here with a guest that I'm looking forward to talking to. Her story is obviously pretty traumatic. I like to start my episodes by thanking my listeners. I'm so grateful to all of you. Don't forget, by the way, that I am now on YouTube. You can see me in all my glory, usually without makeup and my hair in a bun. Um, And I am pushing the episodes so you can see my guest, my wonderful guest and myself. And I always appreciate your, if you go to Apple, um, are you listening on Spotify or Amazon, Audible, Google, wherever you're listening, please go and leave me a review. It helps new listeners find me. And I truly appreciate it. I, I do not have a funny story today, but I will, maybe it's a little bit funny. So my sister and her family are visiting right now. And I've talked about this in the past and maybe Jan, I'll bring you in. Anytime I am around my family, I always revert back to my childhood place in my family. 
And there tends to be a little bit of a temper tantrum by me in my 40s and maybe some crying involved. Um, Jan is a uh, psychologist, so she can probably tell you that's pretty common. But it drives me nuts because I feel like I'm so happy to see my family. I'm so happy to see my sister. She's visiting. Her kids are here. And last night we were like doing karaoke and I was upset about something because I was fighting with my daughter and my sister snapped at me. And Jan, is this common? I'm going to bring you in. Why do we always revert back to wherever we are in our childhood? Even no matter what age you are, can you tell, break that down for me and my listeners? <laughs> Well, I'd say it's common but not universal, and I think what it happens is we all have a role in our family, and it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, and if all the pieces fit, then it works, and if somebody changes the shape of their puzzle piece, it doesn't work, and we start stepping on each other's toes, and it gets awkward, especially if the family has rigidity in those roles and doesn't grow with you. So it can happen, and sometimes we go we get you know go along to get along, and that's how we end up acting. And I feel like there's always drama in families. There's always something going on. Like there's no, I mean, there's no such thing as like in life as perfectionism or the perfect family. It just doesn't exist. But I do end up usually crying and having like a big old lady temper tantrum. I am going to introduce <laughs> Jan Canty to my listeners, to you all that are listening today. She is an author. She's a podcaster. She's a homicide survivor of of her husband. I'm very sorry to hear that. And she's also a psychologist. Welcome, Jan. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I am going to start out by saying um, I had my last episode. I also interviewed actually a true crime podcaster and she sadly lost her niece to a homicide of a boyfriend. So the boyfriend killed her in her sleep. He was addicted to meth um, it was, and then ended up killing his parents. It was an, uh, it's an awful story, but I'm always inspired by people like Kim, who was my past guest, that turn their stories into helping others. And I believe that you do that as well, because I think it's so important. We come, we're on this earth for such a short time, right? And there's, True. we all go through separate things, different things at some point in our lives. Sadly, some people are affected and go through these, I call them tests. I, you can correct me if you don't agree, little tests that we go through in life. And it's like, well, why do some people not have to go through this test and other people do? And, but, but grief is going to affect you at some form or another in your life at some point. So one of the main reasons I do this podcast is to help people be able to process their feelings, hear other people's stories, and also know that it's okay to talk about your grief and it's okay to be grieving. It's okay to feel sad. Um, it's okay to reach out to other people, to go into therapy, all the things that are important to me. And I know Jan are the reason that I do this every week. So every Tuesday this comes out and this is my mission in life is to, is to help other people and um, stop stigmatizing asking for help. Um, Jan, I wanted to ask you a little bit about where you're from and what your early life was like. I grew up in Detroit 
in the 60s and 50s. So I'm a dinosaur. Uh, we, but you're beautiful. Uh, you don't, and you're not a dinosaur. You're a lovely lady. I'm in my 70s now. Um, we had a bunch of kids on our block. I mean, I can't, I don't know, 20 kids to a block. We had marathon board games on Susie Hatcher's screened-in porch. She also had a pool that everybody kind of dominated, one of those above-ground pools. Uh, I played baseball, and just like, again, this is in the late 50s, early 60s. I had uniforms. We had trophies. It was the whole nine yards. I was the pitcher. I loved baseball, but that changed later because of my husband's death. He was killed with a baseball bat. But uh, my childhood, I, I lived really close to the school. I loved school. I, I, I was disappointed when it was out in the summer, except for baseball. Um, <laughs> my parents were great. They, my brother and I had a friction thing going because I was his annoying little sister and he was older. I have a twin sister. We were competitive, I think, in part because people compared us constantly. Constantly. Yeah. I felt like a pair of bookends. So we gave up on that and, and, and deliberately kind of, if she was good at something, I wouldn't try in it anymore and vice versa. And that remained the pattern for many, many years. But overall, I would say it was a very positive, happy, secure time. A lot of creativity in my house, a lot of guests, a lot of good food. The only negatives, as I can recall looking back, is that sexism was still alive and well in those eras. And my brother had more privileges than I did. Like he was able to drive my dad's 57 Thunderbird convertible just because he was a male. I was never allowed to even touch it, even though he was a monster behind the wheel. And my parents, because for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the era or their own educational background, they did not prepare me whatsoever for life after high school vocationally. I tried to engage them multiple times in a serious conversation about what should I do because they made it clear they were not going to pay a penny towards college. They said, that's on you. If you want to do that, you got to figure it out. That's not on us. And so it's not required. You can earn a living without a college degree. Uh, join the military, join the Peace Corps, be a waitress, it doesn't matter. But whatever job you do, you do it well and you do it ethically. And that was, and and preferably choose something you like doing because you're going to spend a lot of hours and weeks and years at it. And that was the sum total of their advice. So I kind of left high school numb because I hated high school. Hated it with a passion. I felt like I was. Why did you, why uh, did you hate high school? Oh, I hated it for so many reasons. First of all, I had to walk. It was two and a half miles each way in freezing oh, cold weather with a skirt. Ugh. I didn't like my band instructor. One time I, I worked my way up to first chair and I forgot to bring a red pencil to mark up my music. So he demoted me to last chair, which would have meant another year to get up to the first chair. So that I quit band. Uh, the other reason I didn't like it was because I thought it was busy work. They wanted me to take home back. I'm like, I know how to sew. I know how to cook. I think this is boring. I want to take shop. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. You can't do that. And I said, well, what if I need to change a lock, a, a lock or a light switch someday? Oh, you'll get your husband to do that. I just thought, Doesn't that make you so mad? Yes. That infuriates yes. me. I mean, there's so many women like that. My mom came on a few. She was on a couple episodes ago and or last. I don't know. It was probably more than a couple episodes ago. And she talked about um, how, you know, like she she had been attacked as a little girl 
and they didn't believe in therapy back then. But also, so she like lived with the trauma her whole life. But also she was kind of like, she did go to all girls college, but there's so many like things that were like, okay, well, you're going to go, you can go to school, but this is expected of you. You need to like graduate college, get married, and then have babies when you're super young. It was just like, that was the norm. And it continued to be the norm. What's terrifying to me is like, if that norm comes back, but that's a whole separate thing that would be like a three hour long podcast that nobody wants to hear me rant about. (laughs) Um, I, I, I think that it sounds like you knew from a young age, you were bigger than in your identity than what you were offered and you knew that you had things to do in life. I knew what I did not want. I did not want to be like my neighbors. I did not want to go out of high school. It wasn't my choice. If somebody wants to do it, that's fine. But it wasn't my choice to graduate high school, get married, have babies and stay home. That to me would be like wearing a straitjacket. I knew more what I didn't want to do. And so I moved out at 18 and I I thought, I don't know how in the world I'm going to finance this, but I am determined to get a college degree. So I started out at community college, which was pretty cheap, transferred my credits, and I fortunately got a $500 scholarship. I rented an $80 a month apartment, which gives you an idea what it was like. This is in the inner city of Detroit. It was in such a bad area. I put my bed on the floor away from the windows so the gunfire wouldn't come through. There were rats oh in it in the place. I was oh. the only person probably under 70 in that, which now sounds younger than it did then. But anyway, <laughs> I I, uh, I wasn't wanted because I was younger. And I even sold my beat-up Volkswagen one year to pay for tuition. I had no other way of figuring it out. And so I started having to walk those streets to get to school back and forth, which was three miles. And I always tried to get home before dark. It wasn't always possible in the winter. And I had a couple close calls. So I started dressing like a boy with a hood, even in summer. And that was a dangerous part. I mean, it was a dangerous city in a dangerous part of the city. But I, I just thought, you know, this too shall pass. And my parents were like, what are you doing? You've moved from a nice, comfortable home to this crappy old building. And I said, I got to do it. You told me, figure it out. Well, I did. That's the power of determination. And I'm always so inspired by people that just won't take no for an answer. And they're like, this is what I'm doing. This is how it's going to get done. You're and I, you're a fighter. That's amazing. I love hearing And some that. of that I attribute to my brother trying to put me in my place all the time because he would say, mm-hmm. well, you can't do this. And so and I said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Watch me. And <laughs> we were never close, but I was always trying to to put him in his place. And I think it had a, an effect on me to have a backbone because I was not like he'd throw his shirt at me and say, go iron this. And I throw it on the floor and step on it and say, I ain't doing it. You do it. And he was like, so he got me in a headlock because he was taking wrestling and I knew he wouldn't hurt me, but I knew he would, he would try to scare me. And I go, is that all you got? Is that, come on, is that all you got? You're a wimp. And I just push back, push back. And he always stopped just short of injuring me. But I was determined not to have him or anybody else put me in my place ever. 
And my mom told me so, the story when I was born. I was I was a yeah. preemie. I was a, in an incubator. She said you you were very weak, very small, very fragile. She said you look like a plucked chicken. That was her words. And she said you tried and tried and tried to roll over, and you were premature, and you did it after twenty four hours. And she said, I just thought, oh my God, this girl's going to do something in her life. So I think some of it might have been inborn. I don't know. Who knows? I I, I that's a, that. I love hearing those stories like of determination and people that just won't give up or won't say no. There, there mm-hmm. needs to be more of that in this world, I think. Um, tell me, tell me how, so you went to, you put yourself through school and then did you end up meeting your husband young? Tell me a little bit about that. I was in my soft, late sophomore year when I met him. Because I transferred, yeah, I, I was I was transferred to Wayne State University in Detroit. I was then in my early twenties. He was eighteen years older than me, and he was my employer. That's how we met. I was typing his manuscript for a book, and I did it on my own time in my own apartment. But then he asked me to be a receptionist as well with a raise, which I desperately needed. I didn't have any money, and mm-hmm. even after selling my car, I couldn't even afford the bus fare back in school back and forth to school. So I did that. That's how we met and ended up starting lunches together and then occasionally dinners together. And I think it was about a year, year and a half that we started seeing each other socially. And then did you go on to get married shortly after? About a a half a year later, I proposed to him. Good for you. Why am I surprised to even hear that from you? (laughs) That's great. I'm not surprised he wasn't, at all. He wasn't a ladies' man. He wasn't particularly handsome, but I like the fact that he believed in me, that he was the yeah. first person that says, of course you can do this. Of course you can. And he was very supportive and talked highly of his former wife, which I liked, and uh, was successful in his own right. And I didn't know any guys like that. The guys my age were like still bragging how many Marlboros they could smoke, you know? So by comparison, mm-hmm. it didn't seem like much of a choice. Did you go on to have kids? No, we never wanted children. Okay. Um, but I did I, end up getting ha- pregnant and having a miscarriage at one point. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, so tell me, this is me asking for you to share the story. And I know it's difficult. Um, I just kind of wanted to get that backstory and then go into like how long you were married. It sounds like he was a fantastic person. I love hearing that. I love hearing that you, somebody's supportive. I mean, that's like one of the best things. I've been with my husband for 20 plus years. We met young. And I think that one of the most wonderful things in a marriage or in a relationship is support and telling somebody you can do it. That you know, that's more important really than anything else. That's one of the most important things you can ask for in a marriage. Yes, he was quite supportive and and we were married ten years. In our and, and during that time I completed my bachelor's. I had a PhD degree, which isn't very common. It's a bachelor's of philosophy. My master's, my doctorate. And then in our ninth, tenth year of marriage, I wanted to go for a postdoctoral fellowship too. I'm like, why not? Because that would allow me to work as a psychologist and as a family therapist. And that was the first time I saw him being not supportive. He was like taken aback. And I look back on that now and it's pretty clear why. The, it wasn't clear. At the, at the time, he blamed it on finances, which didn't make any sense because there was no tuition involved. I'd be making a modest earning. But 
Looking back, I know that the reason was because I was surpassing him in his education, and he ain't having it. He was not happy, and he tried to talk me out of it. But I went ahead and did it anyway. <clears throat> I was one of 12 candidates, and they only accepted three out of the country. And we began to drift apart at that point. I blamed it on his age. He was becoming preoccupied and tired. He did give up smoking at my request. Uh, started drinking a little bit, which it was new, mm -hmm. and a little bit irritable. Nothing dramatic, but different. And so as time passed, it grew. It became more, all of those traits became more exaggerated. And I tried to get him to go to the doctors. I was thinking he wasn't feeling well because he was 49 at this point. And he wouldn't go. A lot of guys don't do that. And anyway, there was one night in July of 1984 in which he failed to come home from work. It was a raging storm that night. Sorry, it was July of 85. He, it was a raging storm out, and I was watching Live Aid, which was a three-hour special, so I lost track of time. He had called and said he'd be home at 6.30. And I looked up, and it was 10 o'clock, and I'm like, holy crap, look at this weather. Where is he? Because he was never late, especially hours late. But this is before cell phones and before internet, so I was on my own to figure out how to connect with them, and I, I couldn't. I, I tried everything I could. So at midnight, by the time he had not come home, I asked my neighbor to drive me down to the office because I was too shaky to do that. And he wasn't there, and everything was in order. And I'm like, maybe his car broke down in the weather. So time passed. The next morning, I reported him missing. That took me two tries. The first police station said they would not do it, and they were very rude about it. So I called my parents, and I asked them if they would fly in because they were already planning on coming in. I was just asking if they could come in a week earlier than they'd planned, and they did. And so that first week, we just twiddled our thumbs. We didn't know. You know, we, we waited. We didn't know what to do. <clears throat> and then we got a call from an officer, Marlis Landeros from the Detroit Police Department, asking, my, asking me to come downtown to meet with Gil Hill. Gil Hill was the inspector of homicide. I knew that. And I'm like, that's not good. And I knew what he, or at least I had an idea what I thought he'd be like, because he had just come off the movie set for Beverly Hills Cop. He, he played the role of Eddie, Eddie Murphy's boss, Inspector Todd. And he wasn't much different in real life. Very short on words, very intense. Um, so my parents went down there with me, and basically in a few words, I mean, it was very short. We went up to the fifth floor of this 10-story building, and he said, um, your husband's been seen a lot on Casper Street in downtown. He's been seen giving out lots of money. We have every reason to believe he's been murdered, but we don't have his body yet. And this is back before DNA, what it is today. Yeah. So uh, what I want you to do is to go home and check your finances. We're gathering more information, and we'll be in touch. I mean, it was that to the point. So we went home, and I looked at my finances, and not only were we broke, we were $30,000 in debt, which by today's standards is about $75,000. None of it was making sense to me. I'm like, Casper, I didn't even know where that street was. Why would he be getting out? Oh, and he also told me at that first interview that he'd been seen in the company of John Carl Fry and Don Marie Spence, two names that meant nothing to me. Well, then it broke 
all over the news because what happened in very short order was a confidential, actually more than one confidential informant came forward to talk to the police when they were canvassing the area because they hated John Carl Fry so much that they correctly saw this as an opportunity to get rid of him once and for all. And they just spewed information that they normally would not, would, would hold back. And they talked about seeing my husband's car at their house one night, seeing them throw packages in the trunk and take off at midnight in this horrendous rainstorm. And so they got a search warrant, went in, and there was clearly a homicide that had taken place in there, but nobody. So, so backpedaling a little bit, this John person was, who was he? He was a pimp and, and Don Marie Spence was a prostitute. And okay. my husband had befriended them to have a relationship with her and give him money, hand oh, over no. fist, daily, daily. Oh, no. But according to Don, the sex part faded pretty quickly. And then he would just show up and want to have breakfast with him or read the paper with him or tell stories about Detroit, play pool. It was like he was befriending them as a couple. It was weird. And even at one point tried to buy John into leaving. He said, if, you know, if I give you five grand, would you go away? And John agreed. But then, of course, just moved down the hall and kept his relationship. So, uh, yeah, that was his. Because you see, again, this only made sense Many years later, not at the time, mm -hmm. when I got the postdoctoral fellowship, I didn't need him. I I wasn't enamored of him in the same way. I, I outgrew him. He needed an audience. He needed to be needed. He needed to have the resources. He needed to surround himself with people without resources so he could be in charge. So when I wasn't fulfilling that role anymore, he went out and found two other people that would. Because they definitely so needed his that's resources. Very, that's very common I, from what I understand, correct? More common than I wish it was. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And they needed him for drug money and, you know, they weren't about were, to get a were, job. Did you suspect, like, was he gone all the time? Like did, He was working, like, he said, all the time. Working his, all the time. And his mother was a widow and he was there a lot. And... uh I, so you I just never kept... suspected anything. You never well, thought anything. Let me back up. In, in this 10-year period, uh -huh. towards the end, when he had started this charade with them, he had a psychotic break and was hospitalized psychiatrically for six weeks. So when he became irritable, when he was preoccupied, when he would do weird things like leave the refrigerator open, that's the, as an example of being preoccupied, I kept attributing it all to his psychiatric state of mind. And he always had taken charge of the bills. And even though I wanted to, he would never let me. He's, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But that discussion never happened. So that was where my mind was going, was he was having emotional problems again. And I feared he would have another psychotic break. And so I didn't know how far to push, you know. It's not like I could check his cell phone. <laughs> there wasn't any cell phone. Yeah. And I wasn't about to go into his office if he was seeing patients. So, you know, I just took him at his word. So I didn't yeah. suspect a lot. No. And and so what so what ended up happening? I mean, I can, this is so much information that I just did not expect at all to hear something like that. You must have been not only obviously you knew he was probably murdered at that point. 
but then to be told that you're in massive amounts of debt and the and the that breaking, he was unfaithful that yeah like being unfaithful and like you're try- i mean i can't even imagine the pain of learning all of that stuff at one time i think the only thing i had going well, two things i had going for me was my parents and my fatigue because i wasn't sleeping at the at this point much at all mm-hmm. and i was so tired i was numb i felt like a robot so a few days passed and the news had just descended and they were extremely rude extremely intrusive Mm-hmm. I, I can't even begin to describe. That's a whole nother hour to describe the media. But another week went by and Detective Landeros called again and said, we need you back. We um, And you can bring your... And she said, no, actually, I'm going to come pick you up. Yeah. I thought, well, that's different. So she brought us down to Detroit Police Headquarters again with Inspector Gil Hill again. And he basically said in very few words, we have, your, we have recovered your husband's body because of a confidential informant. And we need you to identify his body parts in the morgue. We need that for trial. And Detective Landeros will take you. I'm like, body parts? You know? I could hardly stand. Yeah. So she drove us over there, and she prepared me for what I was going to see verbally. You know, this is what you're going to see. And then she'd say, we need you to say yes or no. You You can't nod. You have to say the words, probably because they were recording it. I'm guessing. And I, my dad kept insisting he'd do it for me. And she said, you can't. It's for the trial. So she has to do it. So my mom waited outside. I didn't want my dad to be subjected to that. He had his own issues with cancer. And he was, you know, we're supposed to be. Re- These are his golden years. He's retired, you know, and he's battling intestinal cancer. And I thought, he doesn't need to be doing this. But I couldn't stand. I, my legs were like jelly. And so he got under under one side of me and Detective Landero's on the other. And they led me into this room. And she said, whenever you're ready, open your eyes. And do you need more time? And I said, no. And she said, uh, okay, are you ready? And, and I'm thinking, how can I ever be ready? How does anybody ever get ready to look at a head of somebody that they've loved who's been buried in a bog for 10 days. Mm-hmm. So I opened my eyes and I couldn't talk and I closed them again. We had to start all over. After I identified him, I started exiting the building with her and there was a slew of reporters. This is like seven o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. The reporters were already assembled. And I was kind of like a marionette. I was being led. I wasn't in charge of myself. And I looked out the door. This is where my state of mind was at and fatigue. I looked out the door of the morgue, and for a moment, what I thought I saw was a machine gun on a turret. Really, it was a camera on a tripod. But that's how frightening and how out of control my life felt at that moment. And I just froze, and Detective Landeros then saw what happened, so she spun me around, and we went out the back. The next, we went home, and uh, my dad handled the front door and the phone to keep the media away. And the next big event was the funeral, and they went over and informed his mother for me, which bless her hearts, they didn't have to do that, but they did, to tell my mother-in-law, who never accepted it, who never accepted any of this. She kept saying it must be an error or there must be a black a, a blackmail angle. I mean, she never really did accept his part in all of it. At any rate, uh, we, she wanted a funeral, and I said, I don't care at this point. You do whatever you want. and. I'll go along with it. It meant nothing to me. 
So she planned it. I, I went an hour and a half early to Verheiden Funeral Home in Gross Point Park and told them, I do not want the media in here at all. And they said, well, you know, it's a public sidewalk and we can't keep people off the street with their satellite dishes. I said, no, but you can keep them from coming inside. It's a private business. Well, we don't know who's reporters from the regular people. And I could clearly see they weren't on the same page with me. By then it was too late. People started coming in. I sat in the front row. And the media was so disruptive that it started an argument behind me that some of the people who were there for the right reasons were saying, I remember I heard one guy say, haven't you had you fill your bastards? Get the fuck out of here. And I'm like, oh, boy, this is a funeral. I could not wait to get out of there. I, I got up the moment I could to leave. And a camera was right in my face so close. I don't even think it would have been in focus. It was so close. My friend put his hands over the lens and yelled at him to back off, slipped me the keys to his car and said, go home. And I went out the back door. I mean, I hate to interrupt you, but it's just the all of the trauma of everything you went through. And I think that people have this fascination with this kind of crime, this kind of homicide. I don't, I, I'll never really understand it. I'm sure you have done a lot of research and understand it. But yeah, when you talk about the media and it's like you're getting you're it's like you're already down and then they're beating you over the head again and mm-hmm. that it just seems like it's so wrong i have a friend that went through a horrible horrible situation and she was on the podcast and her family was it's a case that people knew about all over california and her family was the the ex-husband came to the door and basically shot the whole family. It was a horrible story. And, and I've asked her in the past, like, what was that like having the media like be so intrusive when you're in so much pain? I mean, to be grieving in general, a loss of a life, but then also to be going through the betrayal and all the things that you're going through and then them being in your face like that and just basically accosting you. I can't imagine what that was like. And I'm so sorry to hear that. And it does, I don't, I don't even know what to say about it. Well, I don't totally blame the media. I mean, I did check all the boxes for them. You know, my age, the mm-hmm. salacious nature of it. It was a fall from grace, yada, yada, yada. But I don't totally fault them because they want ratings. And what drives ratings? The public. Mm-hmm. What the public pays attention to is what they cater to. If the public wasn't interested in this stuff, it would go away. It's a business. So it's not totally, they're delivering up what the public is demanding. So, and I was told recently by the um, producer I was involved with for a upcoming special that she felt that they would not have treated a male the same way. In other words, a widower. Um, but that that's, there's more too, but I'll just say they disrupted the funeral. So I went home. And the next big thing, this was you know, a week after he had been murdered, and the next big thing was the preliminary exam, and I was subpoenaed to go. I did not want to go, but I, you can't ignore a subpoena. And that was the first time I had seen the two perpetrators in real life, <clears throat> John Carl Fry and Don Marie Spence. 
And by this time, I had gotten a little more rest because my parents had flown in. They'd forced me to eat because I was just getting by on water up to that point in time. I, I couldn't yeah. even think. I couldn't even make a decision if I was hungry or not, let alone what to eat, let alone how to prepare it, let alone what to buy in order to prepare it. I mean, that was way beyond me at that point. So when my mom and dad came in town, she would insist that I'd eat, but I wasn't really hungry. But I'd eat a little bit, and I was trying to sleep as best I could. So by the time that the prelim came around, which was in a couple months, well, probably a month later after his murder, uh, I was shifted out of being scared and being numb to being infuriated. Mm -hmm. And I went into the very crowded courtroom early. We got there early. His mother did not show because she did not want to know any reality. They tried to separate my parents from me because they didn't want my parents coaching me. And I'm like, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. So they insisted they be set at the front and they were they finally let them come in. And Detective Landeros was there. I don't know whether she had to be or not, but she was there. And I was so angry. This was also a place, the, the, um, the building itself, where they did a weapons check at the front, at the front door. And then the yeah. judge requested a secondary weapons check at the door of the mm -hmm. courtroom because John mm -hmm. Kyle Fry was known to be associated with other homicides and they were worried he'd be killed on the witness stand. So by the time I got there, I, I was the first witness up. And I remember walking in the aisle. They were to my left. The defense table was to my left at the front. And it was very hectic, a lot of cameras, a lot of people, a lot of walking around. I don't know where why people were doing that, but chaotic feeling. And I pretended when I went by their defense table like I lost my balance, like I'd been jostled. And instead, I slammed my hand on their de on their table. But really, I just did it to do it, to say, screw you. I was so mad. Yeah. Got up to the front, and the defense stipulated to my testimony, because he couldn't wait to get me out of there fast enough. But the defense, I mean, the DA asked me the most ridiculous questions. He asked me, so have you ever, have you given anybody permission to dissect your husband's body? Now, first of all, dissection is different than dismemberment. One's scientific and exploratory and medical, and the other is butchery. And the obvious answer to that is no, but he had to ask me something, I guess. So he just asked me a few stupid questions, and I was done. I did not go to the trial, which was slated for December, which is record timing. Instead, I flew out to Phoenix to be with my parents. I wanted nothing to do with it because nothing would change in my life. I'd still be yeah. a widow. I still have a house to sell. I'd still be hounded by the media. I'd still be having medical problems because by then the medical was kicking in. I'd still have uh, loss of privacy. I'd still, I, it was a mess. And I thought, no but matter were what you happens, also, Dan, were you also afraid? Like, I would be scared. No, I was mad. No. No. You were mad. You, you were not too afraid. angry to be scared. Yeah. No, I thought, no, I wasn't scared at all. I was just angry. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. This time of year is the worst. I feel like I can't do anything and I can't enjoy my dinner because I can't taste my food and I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even feel like I can host this show because my voice sounds like a duck. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out. I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So they had separate trials. Uh, John had a jury trial. <laughs> Get a load of this. His defense attorney, genius that he was, chose an all-female jury with the assumption that they would go easy on John because my husband who'd been murdered was unfaithful. And of course, they all convicted him. He got maximum life in prison without the chance of parole. They don't have the death sentence there. However, Don Spence had a bench trial, and he gave her just a few months, even though she helped transport the body and et cetera, et cetera. She was out before I could sell my house. That's how little her time she spent. So she was out for that amount of time. Do we? Uh, do you know why they did it? Did they talk about it, that in the trial? Do he said. He said he saw a potential in her. The judge did. But no, I'm asking why did the Don and John kill your husband? Did they? Because he refused ever... to give him any more money. Oh, so, when John was okay. on the witness stand, he admitted to doing it. It wasn't any question. He he bragged about it. He'd been in prison so much, it was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going back. But then just the way he killed him, too. Like, was he a violent criminal? Had he done that to somebody in the past? Do you he have had, any? These are his words, not mine. Okay. John said, I have carved up a few years in my day. My God. 
He didn't care. There's nothing you could do to the, he was like a two-dimensional person. He didn't care. There was no way to reach him. He was beyond it. So after the trial, the judge called me and asked me what I wanted for sentencing. And I told him and, you know, but he did what that, what he did. And so she got off with a slap of the wrist and he got life, but he escaped within the first six months, but he was recaptured, put back. And he ended up dying five years into his sentence from hep C because of, you know, the drugs he had done. And maybe was still doing for all we know, because the Wayne County Jail was pretty loosey-goosey run. Well, by then he'd been transferred to Jackson, so that's a tougher place to get drugs in. But at any rate, he didn't last long behind bars. But he, I, did have an, I do have an interview of him in solitary confinement, and he is so smug and so proud of what he had done, still from solitary confinement. There was no reaching him. He had no scruples about what he had done. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and match you within 48 hours to a licensed therapist. Let me tell you, I obviously talk a lot about my own therapist, Dr. Nay. She's kind of been not seeing patients as much lately and doing her own thing. She's writing a book, which I can't wait to read. So I filled out the survey myself and I got matched up with the most amazing therapist. I didn't even think it was possible, but I've had several sessions and she's wonderful. So please check it out. Um, it is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional therapy service done li- done online. Um, and it serves people all over the world. And my listeners get 10% off by going to betterhelp.com forward slash judging Megan. That's 10% off your first month going to betterhelp, H-E-L-P. Tell me what it was like in the aftermath. So then the trial was over. Then you went to be with your parents. You obviously had have a, at that point had a degree in psychology. So you must have understood like the process of grieving and studied up on it and but nothing could have prepared any human for what going through something so horrific. And you have to understand I was not grieving at that point and the reason I was not grieving at that point is because every day there was another problem whether it was back taxes whether it was I had a um go for AIDS testing. This is the height of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. There, yeah. The Elysian test for AIDS had just been approved 10 days before I got it. And my doctor told me it's imperfect because it's new. So you have to be tested every year for seven years to know you're in the clear. No wonder you were mad. I mean, what what a nightmare. Like what? How, that's I went into. I can't even imagine. I went into premature menopause. I was never able to bear children after that. I had to sell my house. I had to deal with the media. There was so many complications legally. I mean, he had signed some, uh, my husband had signed a document that he shouldn't have. And I got stuck trying to figure, sort it out. I don't know why. I had uh, what we call death tourists come by my house, steal things. What does that mean? Death tourists, so people that were fascinated by the case? Yeah, true crime advocates. They okay. would steal from me outside. They do that all the time, not just me, other crime survivors. These people are death tourists. And they'll, they, in my case, they stole paving bricks. I had a paving brick driveway. And I'm trying to sell the house. 
Yeah. And every day there'd be, oh, not every day, but a few times a week, there'd be a missing paving brick. Those things are hard to find. And I had to repair things. I, light bulbs were missing. It was the dumbest stuff. So I had to deal with them at my front door. The media wouldn't let up. And I did not know till later, part of the reason for that was because one of the reporters wanted to write a book. So he kept fanning the flames of it, you know. So, and my mother-in-law was a kind of a pain. She, she sent me a, an anniversary card after all that was over. And I'm like, an anniversary card? Why should I be wanting to celebrate my anniversary with a $25 check inside? She must have just been in like such hor- she horrific She was in La La Land. Yeah. I was so mad. I, I tore it up like confetti and jammed it in a new envelope. This is not like me, by the way, but it's yeah. where my head was at at the moment. And in, in red ink, because his family was very into appearances. They were well-to-do. Mm-hmm. And I wrote on the envelope, I will not celebrate a marriage to a whoremonger. And I yeah. mailed it back to her. I mean, but you were angry. You had every right to be angry. And and let me ask you, like, why were you responsible if he came for money? That's what I don't understand. Why does the why are you left? Why is the wife or the spouse left with somebody that was cheating and doing all the things that he was doing, being responsible for his massive amount of debt? Like, I don't understand why the are the laws were or are they still like that? Well, they're still like that in a lot of states. It's it's a shared yeah. state. Um and if you're married you don't get excused. You're you're presumed to have given permission. Did you withhold. stay in that house? Did you? Oh, end up I was trying. No, I was trying desperately to sell it, to sell it. But another complication yeah. I had was, and this is not unique to me, is that when people have had a murder, and it in my case it didn't take place under my roof, did not matter. You have to disclose that to a potential buyer. It's now. Call it's now considered a stigmatized property, even if it didn't take place in the house. Right, I never knew that. Right. Okay, and if you don't, you they can rescind the and and they're superstitious and get freaked out by the fact that oh this house is associated with a murder. They can rescind the offer at any time in the future, and you're stuck with the house again. Is that law still in place? I'll, it's in, gotten increased from beyond Michigan. In, yes. Okay. And it lasts for wow. the first three years. And it takes twice as long to sell your house. It's devalued on average by 15%. In my case, it was 23%. So I had trouble selling the house. I so hated you just it. couldn't, you could not get a break. It's like you went through this all is, this This stuff is why I'm were... saying why I wasn't grieving. Yeah. I was so, I was dealing with health issues, legal issues, financial issues, yeah. real estate issues, you name it. His patients want it. He's a psychologist too. We're, we're contacting me and I'm like, I, I can't deal with you guys. Go away. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, everywhere I turned, there was an issue. And it every day was like, what's it going to be today? And I moved. Finally, I did sell my house and I moved locally to a place I really liked. Uh, but I had to change my phone number so often because of reporters and his patient. I, I don't know how they got hold of my number that I would start to write it down because that's the only way I could remember my phone number. And after 18 months of this, I thought, I got to leave altogether. I can't stay here. And I loved my my house, but I I had to make a clean break of it. So I did. I yeah. sold everything and moved out of state. And you told me before we recorded, not to skip ahead, but you you live in an undisclosed place 
because you had you obviously wrote a book. I, when did that book come out? 2020. Okay, so fairly recently. And I don't want to skip ahead, but that's part of why you don't share where you are currently living, correct? Correct. Because the son of the man who murdered my husband threatened me for writing the book. And I thought, screw okay. you. I'm writing it anyway. Yeah. But this is uh, I, that doesn't mean I throw caution to the wind. And it doesn't mean because he has a felony record himself. You need to be careful. Let me ask yeah. you. When you got to the point, because I think a lot of people want to know this, including myself, I have major anger issues um, and and I lack the ability. I'm working on it. This is why, hence, I'm in therapy. Um, the forgiveness. How did, did you, uh, first of all, I did. were you ever able to forgive your husband or forgive the situation or tell me how you were able to cope? moving forward in your life? Forgiveness was never a goal for me. Okay. I never wanted that. Because in my mind, mm -hmm. forgiveness has to be earned. It is not 100%. a blanket. I, I, I forgive you. And he had 18 months of his double life that he led that he had an opportunity to ask for my forgiveness and come clean. He didn't take that opportunity. And obviously, after you're dead, you can't do that. The other reason is if some, let's say somebody's still alive and you give them forgiveness for cheating or something else, you're giving, sometimes you are, in fact, I would say often you are clearing the, the page, you're, you're wiping the slate clean, which gives them permission to do it again because like, well, geez, that was easy. All I got to do is, she'll forgive me. The other reason is because you don't have all the facts. So if you forgive him for doing X, Y, and Z, and then late, and 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 everybody's going, oh yay, you you forgave him, you forgave him, you're such a good person. And then later on, you find out that there's more to the story, and it makes you even angrier. Well, mm -hmm. now you're in a bind because you've already said you've forgiven him. So, no, the only only way I would have considered forgiving him is if he had come clean and demonstrated change but that would be the bare minimum I, and, Jan, and the other one, that, go ahead go ahead sorry one more thing as i want to add and then we can i i don't believe that the flip side of lack of forgiveness is bitterness i believe there's a middle ground and that is indifference and that's the goal i strove for i want to see him in my rear view i want to move on turn the page get a new chapter recreate my life and move on I am not going to orbit this I love this that you're mess. saying that, though, because a lot of people battle. I mean, your struggle and what you've gone through is like, no, it's one of the worst I've heard, to be honest with you. And I've been doing this a while. Um, but it's what, it's what you make of your life moving forward. And I appreciate the honesty because something that really makes me feel kind of uneasy or angry about things in my own life that are completely obviously different than yours are, well, I don't, I'm not ready to forgive. I'm not ready to like let go of stuff. And I think it's, it's okay to be at a point where you're like, I'm doing this for me. And for me, I'm indifferent. So in things that I personally am dealing with, I'm indifferent. So I love that you're saying that it's okay to be indifferent and not be like, I'm, uh, I'm right. I'm okay with what you did, but I'm not okay with what you did. <laughs> no. 
and and why should we? I mean, women are groomed for this kind of crap because yeah. we're taught from the time we're knee high to a grasshopper. You be kind. Mm-hmm. You're complimentary. You know, you round people up. You are always, you know, going to be uh, complacent. And no, I I believe that you earn your respect and you and you you reap what you sow and and people who automatically forgive i mean if it works for them have at it it would not have worked mm-hmm. for me because it would have been insincere and i didn't need that yeah. on top of everything else and i just thought wow this was like a nightmare i can get out of so i'm going to but you were able to move on and like proceed with your life which i'm assuming you struggled with just um like psychologically wanting to go on. I mean, being at the lowest of lows, dealing with all of that trauma right. breaks a person. So I, how were you what able happened to was, do that? I had a, a friend, a, a neighbor who invited me because the press was hounding me and I mm-hmm. felt wrongly or rightly that they were always going to pounce at me after a while. And she said, here's a key to my back door. She had a gorgeous house. Here's a key to my back door. Use the upstairs guest room whenever you want. No questions asked. You don't even need to come down. You don't need to be socialized with us. You don't need to get our permission. Just come and go wherever you want. Leaves it like a hotel. I thought, oh, bless your heart. So after dark, I go over there and sleep. And then I come home. And it was there that I was able to sit back and kind of like exhale and say, what are my plans? What am I going to do to get myself out of this mess? And so my first decision was I'm going to change my name because I want a clean break. I don't want to be associated I mean, for public purposes now, I still use Canty, but that's no longer my name legally. And I decided to move and I decided to give up my practice and not look back. And when I finally was able to get a job and move out of state, sell my house, which I loved, but I had to sell it and move, then and only then, and you're talking 18 to 20 months later, could I sit down and start to grieve because that's the first time I felt like I was in control of my life again. I remember yeah. driving away with the stuff in my car. I mean, the moving van was coming too, but I was by myself. And it was like, you know, there's an old country song that says, you know, you got a gas tank of freedom. That's how it felt. And I just wanted to drive till the mountains were there. You know, I, I just kept driving and driving. And if, the further I got, the better I felt. And I started grieving. After, like, then it started hitting me about, Wow, that was a wild ride, a roller coaster this has been. And so then I fell back on a model that I was taught as a psychologist, which I think has served me well and others. It's called the biopsychosocial model. And basically all it says is that for you to change your life, you have to attend to all three domains, psychologically, sociologically, physically. You can't just focus on any one. So physically, I started going to the gym. I started working out. I met some fantastic people at the gym. I was there four mornings a week at 6.30 in this group. And if you were late, they let you know. (laughs) And we made it as a goal to start doing triathlons. And we did. Sociologically, what I decided to do was to travel to third world countries. And I could do it. I could afford it through volunteer work. So I started going to third world countries in very remote places and started learning about how many, how good I had it. Mm-hmm. I stopped taking for granted the things that I had, like running water, paved roads, my education, the police to back me up, my education, so on and so forth. 
And I saw life I have never seen before or since. And I, I've to this day, it changed me permanently. I, to this day, I don't take clean water for granted. To this day, I don't take the fact that you can call the police as a woman. You can get divorced as a woman. You can have an education as a woman. I don't take any of that for granted. And I saw PTSD like I have never seen it in other women, especially. Oh, my God, what some women have been through in some countries. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about remote places where it took me 10 hours by Jeep to get from the airport to the tent that I was in. And I worked building trusses for girls' schools. And I worked in India doing uh, intake for a medical exam for eye eyeglasses. And uh, the, the, the things I've – when I was in India, I didn't have a bath for a month. That's how remote it was. I think it's amazing. I, I hate to, to talk over you, but I talk about this a lot turning pain into like helping others and your own pain. It's a healing tool. What you're saying, it's like your grief was, it's never going to be healed, right? No. You're always going to carry that for the rest of your life. Grief is something that's always going to pop up in your life or anger, or all the things, but helping others and doing something with your life. Um, in my lowest points, which I've had in my own life, there's nothing that ever has healed me like knowing that I'm helping someone else. And it sounds like that's something that you did. Mm -hmm. I remember having a discussion with a woman at the camp in uh, Kenya, and she was telling mm -hmm. me the story about her fiance. There, you, you, she knew better. I didn't. You're not supposed to walk at dusk or dawn in this camp because of the animals. They're going to the watering hole. And she knew that, but she was out anyway with her fiancé. And this elephant, and they can be extremely mean. We're not talking Indian elephants. This is Kenyan elephants, totally different. They can hide behind a tree. You'd be amazed. Took his trunk, grabbed her fiancé, threw him to the ground, and stamped on him and stomped on him in front of her. And she said to me, I'm not Gloria anymore. I'm not Gloria anymore. And she held his pieces of his body in her arms, risking her own life in the process because the elephant was still there, but she didn't care. And she had no help. She has no potential for help of any kind. And, you know, you look at how Americans live. We have so many resources and we just complain and bitch constantly. A hundred percent. The Internet's yeah. too slow or my my food took too long to reach me or I can't. Or I have to get on. I have to get on an airplane first to yeah. go sit on an airplane for yeah. four hours. But I need to push everybody out of the line. Yeah, yeah. So I came home sociologically with a whole different worldview, and still carry mm -hmm. that to this day, and have made it as a goal to, you know, if I can physically still do it, I still want to go. I've been to five of the seven continents, and then psychologically, that was the hardest one, mm -hmm. and I did not speak of this for thirty years. Again, this is before the internet, before self-help groups, before grief therapy, before any of that. And finally, I thought, I went, three things happened to change that in the same week. One was that I was at a lecture at work, and a physician was speaking. And as a side comment, he said, people who live with a secret for years pay a price physically. And I thought, ooh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and at that same time, in that same week, we had a, Coworker missing, 
Later, we found that she committed suicide. But at the moment, we didn't know where she was. And people were coming up to me and going, can you imagine what that's like to have somebody missing in your family? And I'm going, oh, no. And I'm thinking, I'm lying. Of course I know what that's like. I'm living a double life. I'm not being authentic. And then the third thing that happened was I took those pieces in my mind and I went and sat in my office and I looked at this bookshelf of my favorite books to this day, which are books about people who've been through horrible situations and came out and spoke about them and wrote about them. And I thought, you know, if they did it, I can do it. It's been 30 years. It's so automatic at this point. It's not healthy. So I gingerly started talking about it and people were way nicer than I thought they'd be. They weren't judgmental. They weren't intrusive. They weren't anything negative. And then at the same time, shortly after that, about a year after, because I remarried in all this time, and after that, my new daughter-in-law, uh, who does crime scene cleanup for a living, suggested I do a podcast. Well, from that, I have met other people like myself. I met my mm -hmm. tribe, you know. And that was very healing, to talk with others, because I could finish their sentences for them, you know. And it was like, you too? <laughs> um that was very... What, what is your podcast called? We didn't say that in the beginning. Oh, it's called Domino Effective Murder. Okay. And and you did talk about um, like friends and reaching out to like other homicide survivors. Um, can you talk about that? Because I do think that that's huge. Like just to be able to be free, like you were, it's like you were finally like a I hate to use this analogy, but like a genie in a bottle almost. Mm -hmm. And then you were free because you were holding that secret mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that's like to be able to lean on other survivors like that. Oh, it's hard to describe. It felt like I'd opened a window and the fresh air came in. It felt like mm -hmm. I, it, this is how I think of it. I think of self-help groups or podcasts like what we're talking about as kind of like an embassy in a foreign country. If you're in danger, you need to find a port in the storm. You need boundaries. You need a safe place to go to. And they speak your language. And you go there. And they know the resources. And they speak your language. And they understand you. And if they're doing their job correctly, they help you with safe boundaries. And now you have a safe haven to go to. That's what it's like. And it's amazing experience. That is my number one priority recommendation for people is find a self-help group online or in person and and go if the first one doesn't feel right and you feel you've given it a good shot find another one approach mm -hmm. it the same way you would getting a, a doctor you don't just go to one doctor and and if you don't mix it well you know the chemistry isn't right you just say well i'm giving up on doctors i i like to say i talk about this a lot for therapists that it's like online dating <laughs> It's like dating. You're going on dates and you're like, you're not really a fit for me. And I think that that's huge um, to be able to go if you're grieving a loss. Like, for example, the Good Morning Grief uh, podcast girls, they met each other in a support group. They were guests of mine recently. Um, and that helped them because they both had lost their moms at the around the same time. And they felt like when you're going through grief or something like as awful as what you went through, nobody can understand it unless they really have gone through it. Right. Worse than that, I think, is the people that would exploit it. Yeah. It's bad. I mean, the fact that they don't understand it, you can. OK, I didn't understand it either. I mean, how can you understand something you've never been through? 
that's forgivable. But what is not forgivable is when people exploit you for it and steal from you and uh, shove microphones in your face to get ratings. That's not yeah. okay. A hundred percent. It's and almost so, like ripping, ripping the wound open, yes. like, you know, stealing the because bricks, all the things you talked about. People that do that don't understand. They could be one of us tomorrow. It's well, yeah, I mean, it's club. like it, the human condition is um, it. I, I don't think I mean, I personally, I will admit I went on a the Manson murder tour. I mean, the Sharon Tate no longer obviously is alive and Charles Manson you know, the Manson kids did murdered her and that was horrific in Hollywood. And I went on the tour and they were no longer in the house. The house had been torn down, but they do, there's a tour where you go on it and looking back on it after talking to you or talking to Kim, there, there's a part of me that's like, well, why did I do that? But it's like, it's like, there's a human, something in us as human beings where we want so desperately to understand, well, why, why does this happen? What is death like? And I don't think anybody except that. Yeah, go on because I'm curious. That when to people, your on that. But when people get the answers to why, it mm -hmm. doesn't stop it. Yeah, they'll just go on to the next murder. It, so I don't think that's the total reason. I, if we want to understand and pe and you know that we read a book or we listen to le lectures or whatever it is we do to find out to understand, once we gain that understanding. It should, it should satiate us if that's the yeah. motive, but it isn't. True crime genre is now a million-dollar industry, and yeah. we've got how lots you, of books and lots of lectures. About that? How do you feel about the true crime? I think it's crime? nauseating. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. And I don't know many people that have been through it that do. I mean, getting back to the um, issue of the Manson murders, here's a good example. Yeah. You might find people that could name the people involved not only his entourage, but Sharon Tate and the other people in the house, maybe. But how many people can describe the fallout of those murders on their loved ones? What was the fallout on Sharon Tate's family? What was their names? What did they go through? Yeah. People draw that's a blank. That's not something that people focus on. And when you and, and why that is that? Openly. You know? I don't know. I mean, definitely um, it's, I don't know what it is. I can't put my... I can't really wrap my head around it except to say hearing your story or hearing the stories that I've heard as of late, it makes me feel really bad about something I did. And that was a mistake. I shouldn't have gone on that tour, but it, but again, it, it's the, it's not the innocence. It's the fact that you don't really put fate names and faces behind things. Does that make sense? And you don't want and to, and the criminal justice system to. is the criminal justicism is equally responsible for that too. In the courtroom, yeah. we are not wanted. We unless we're charged with a crime, they don't want us in there. They depersonalize the whole thing, and your loved one becomes the body or the yeah. victim. And that yeah. whole thing is for the state. It's like a. I I told the DA this obviously isn't a trial for me. It's for the state of Michigan. I'm not coming to the trial. Mm -mm. It's a sideshow so for did, you. You didn't go, correct? No. Yeah. Good no. for you. I, I think um, true crime is such that it's become entertainment. And I not only with with um, true crime podcasts, but we have cruises. We have crime con. We have you can go on to Etsy and buy a cereal spoon that says serial killer. Get it? Ha uh ha. -huh. 
on the spoon. Yeah. Yeah. That's awful. I I don't know. It's an American. It's a something that Americans seem to be obsessed with. I think going back to the OJ trial and obviously before that with you and just all these cases, I don't, it's upsetting. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear about all of the suffering that it caused you. I think it really, people should hear your story so they understand how it can affect somebody like you. You know, I don't think there's enough information out there where people need to take their themselves out of it and not be so selfish, you know, and really hear stories of the survivors of crimes. And then maybe people will, will rethink it. It's almost like not to get off topic, but do you remember when the paparazzi were all over the place? I live in Los Angeles. I was there during this time and they were photographing kids, the celebrities kids. And then it got to a point where the celebrities started to fight it in court. And now if you, the paparazzi is not the same as it used to be. I remember one time going to a mall and the Beckhams were in front of me and I almost got run off the road. Literally, I almost got run off the road and could have died because they were following them and they wanted, they, it didn't matter if there were cars that they had to pass or push off the road. So, um, so it's almost like people have to understand that those celebrity kids were affected and now they're not getting their pictures taken or they're blacked out. So I think there needs to be more people like you that come forward and they say, this affects me in these ways and maybe rethink your obsession as people. That's just me getting on my pedestal and throwing it out there. I wish that we crime victims had more rights. Here's just one example. And I said, I spoke at an audience of homicide detectives recently and made the point that In other countries, it is illegal, but it is allowed in the United States that crime scene cleanup companies like Aftermath can post cleanup photos before and after of a homicide without the permission of the owner of the house. Graphic close-ups of decomposition with side commentary and chuckling and all of this re-traumatization. That is not right. They should be required to not do it that they should be held accountable for that because it's re-traumatizing and or get the permission of the owner of the house in order to do it. But it's still out there. It's on TikTok. You can find it on uh, YouTube. And I, and they, they, they get away with it because they call it, quote, educational. That's crime porn. Mm-hmm. And also just the, with the social media in general, things have gotten to a point where everything's online. Like We've you become desensitized. We've gore. become desensitized. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, Jan, I could talk to you all day, but I do want you to talk a little bit about um, your book. You have a new book coming out. Can you tell me that my audience, the title and tell me when that's going to be out? The new book is quite different. It, the first one was more autobiographical. This is a reference. What is the book first book called? Sorry, I skipped oh, that too. The, f- the first <laughs> book is called A Life Divided. And it's just basically autobiographical it talks about what happened. And uh, with some commentary at the end about general information for homicide survivors. But it didn't, I didn't feel that was enough. So mm-hmm. this book called What Now? Navigating the Aftermath of Homicide and Suicide. It's a reference book and it takes people through what should you do now, starting with things like the death notification, pl- funeral planning, dealing with the media, uh, selling your house, uh, on down the line to the trial 
attending parole hearings, um, long-term advocacy. It's it's quite comprehensive. I had I called upon and and instantly was um, welcomed to get the input of 17 contributors out of my area of expertise. So, for example, there's one chapter that deals with being falsely accused of the homicide because that's another area of interest of mine is wrongful convictions. That's a whole other subject. But if you're wrongly convicted of murdering somebody in your family, and it happens for various reasons, you need to know what to do. And so I ran the ideas, the list of things that people should do if they get the feeling that they're going to be charged wrongly for the murder, what should they do? I ran it by a, a top-notch defense attorney in Chicago. He was very nice. Didn't charge me a penny. Sure, that's fine. I said, can I use your name as a contributor? Sure, that's fine. I did another chapter on uh, on uh, how to get your house ready for sale if you must leave it, because people will sell their house either because they feel afraid or, like in my case, I couldn't afford it, and you got pro, uh, to, to get it ready. And so and especially if it's crime scene cleanup involved. So I had a home builder help me with that, the Stamper Construction. So I've had these 17 contributors, and it's been through the editing process, but I've been so busy I haven't been able to look at her edits. I'm going to do that starting this week because I have surgery and I'm going to be confined to bed. So I will have a chance to look at it, but hopefully it will be out by November. That's my goal anyway. And where can people follow you? Are you you're on social media? Can you give me that info? I'm on TikTok for one thing. Okay. And uh, but I have I have it all in one place. All they got to do is go to my website. I made it simple. It's all there. So if they just go to www.jancantyphd.com, all small letters. I have my TikTok connection there. Uh, my books, um, my podcasts. It's all in one place. Well, Jan, you are a remarkable human. You've taught you. you really have taught me so much today. Um, and you really made me actually think, and I hope my listeners that are listening to this think um, about some of the things you said. I am so sorry for everything you've been through. Something that I want to point out that I think is one of the most amazing things that I talk about a lot is how you took that anger, that pain, all of the things that you've gone through. And then you turned it around and you went and helped other people. And I think that's one of the most important things that you can do in life is, is helping other people. So I close every podcast with be happy by making other people happy. Jan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.